This is The Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Let's do it again, Dr. Jana, episode five. Oh my God, episode five. How many of these episodes have you listened to so far? Have you gone back and downloaded it and reviewed it on iTunes? I have listened to all of them. You're lying. But if you have heard it and you like what you hear, (laughs) make sure you rate and review the podcast. Just click on the iTunes there. Tell us what you think. And you know what? We listen to all criticism, whether you love it or not, whether you're a fan of mine or, you know, decide to write a one-page review of the show. It's fine. We read everything because we want to. This is an interactive show. You're not taking this personally at all. Not at all. Well, listen, I'm going to wait till you actually listen to a show, (laughs) but we do have a jam-packed show to discuss. Uh, Dr. Jana, what are we doing today? We are asking the questions if millennials are more or less sexually permissive than their parents. And we talked to Dr. Brooke Wells from Widener University about some changes in sexual behaviors and attitudes over time. So we're out here in New York City, but some great news out of California, Dr. Jana. Californians who do not identify as male or female will have a third gender option on their driver's license and birth certificates under a bill signed by Governor Jerry Brown. And so this is great news for transgender folks and the LGBT BTQ community. Yeah, this is great uh, and a great option for a lot of people who don't identify with either male or female. So people who are non-binary, an umbrella term for a lot of people who don't necessarily think of themselves as strictly male or strictly Mm -hmm. female. It's definitely an amazing move towards understanding that there are people who fall outside the binary, even though most of us are pretty happy with the binary. Sure. It's still... It's good that people have that choice. And you know what's scary to me? You know, and I hate to say this, and you're not a huge pop culture buff like I am, but I think a lot of it has to do with the Kardashians and the fact that Caitlyn Jenner really informed a lot of people. For me personally, I became so educated when that announcement went down and her interview with with Diane Sawyer. And to me, I think it broke a lot of barriers and really opened up a lot of people who probably, first of all, had no idea that this was even a thing. You (laughs) know what I mean? There's people living out there who didn't really know to people transgender mm-hmm. like I don't what does that even mean so oh, I, it was very informative and I think that helped a, a long way to getting to where we are especially in California with this new bill no I think there's no doubt that pop culture and celebrities coming out and speaking about various things can bring social change on a larger scale and even though there are a lot of problematic issues around how Caitlyn Jenner came out and mm-hmm. who Caitlyn Jenner is right. and what are some of the things that she stands for and to what extent she's representative or supportive of the larger trans community, still one of the good things about this is that it brought it out into daylight and made it a real thing for so many people. I think these things often have a double-edged sword uh, to some extent. Like, for example, when Fifty Shades of Grey happened, a lot of people were very critical of the way kink and BDSM was portrayed in that book, that Mm -hmm. there were some really bad things around that. And absolutely, that should not be used as a guide to how to do kink safely and consensually and all that but at the same time it brought kink out into the mainstream and that is a good thing in in general and speaking of pop culture playboy magazine will have its first openly transgender playmate (laughs) she's a 26 year old french model named inez rao and she's already huge on instagram 240,000 followers i mean that's pretty awesome it was about damn time yeah (laughs) i mean she is by the way stunning oh yeah Yeah, right Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. But there has been a huge change in acceptance and visibility of trans folks, even though they are some of the, still to this day, they remain one of the most persecuted sexual minority yeah. as sexual minorities or gender as sexual minorities go. And they do suffer most mental.
mental health issues and substance abuse issues and physical health issues. So so there's still there's still a long way to go yeah. as a society in integrating and you know making trans folks feel welcome. And obviously with all the craziness happening with bathrooms and all that. Yeah. But at the same time, we're certainly seeing a lot more visibility with trans folks becoming the faces of beauty pageants yeah. and TV movie stars. And we have one in Playboy. You know, the one thing scary thing about that, though, too, is you say how, how far we've come. But look how long the gay rights movement took for the gay community to be accepted you know, nationally and, you know, be able to marry and, and be out in public. That took years. I mean, well, that took decades, decades. But that in some ways went faster than some other things like racial. True. Good point. Yeah. You know, relationships and and equality. And we still nowhere near being at that level of equality, even though that has been going on for much longer. So, yeah, some societal changes take time. Some are faster than others. And hopefully this one will be just a little quicker than the others we've mentioned. And speaking on the subject of changes in sexual attitudes, our next guest covers all that in her new study. So let's get into it. The science of sex goes deeper. People often think of today's generation, the millennials, generally those born between 1982 and 1999, and then the latest, iGen or Gen Z, those born since 1995 or 6, as this extremely sexually liberated and active. Since 2005, there have been several studies testing this assumption by looking into changes in American sexual behaviors and attitudes over the last five decades or so that have resulted in some expected and some unexpected findings. In terms of sexual attitudes, millennials were more accepting of premarital sex and same-sex sexuality than all previous generations at the age of 18 to 29. But everybody, millennials included, are just as unaccepting of teen sex as they've ever been, and people nowadays are actually less accepting of extramarital sex compared to previous generations. So no universal move toward greater sexual permissiveness in attitudes. Then, when we come to sexual behaviors, millennials, as one might expect, were more likely to have had a same-sex sexual partner than previous generations. But at the same time, millennials reported fewer total number of sexual partners than baby boomers and Gen Xers, the generation right before them. And specifically, millennials had six more partners than the greatest generation, those born in the 1900s, but they actually had three fewer than the baby boomers. Millennials were also twice as likely as the Gen Xers to not have had any sexual partners in the age range of 20 to 24. And frequency of sex has been decreasing over time as well. So those born in the 1930s, the silent generation, had sex approximately 63 times per year, the highest of any cohort. Well, those born in the 1900s, the late millennials and the early iGens, had sex approximately 57 times a year, which is the lowest of any cohort. That makes sense. They didn't have all they had was TV back then, so... What else is there to do a fool around back in the day? Here with us today is Dr. Brooke Wells, one of the researchers on these four studies. Dr. Wells is an associate professor at Widener University, where she also directs the PhD program in human sexuality. She received her PhD in social psychology from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And in addition to the work on cultural trends and sexual behaviors and attitudes that we're going to talk about today, she has conducted extensive research on HIV prevention among gay and bisexual men, sexuality and substance use among young adults, 
and sex parties and sex parties attendees. That's some of the work that we're doing together, Brooke and I. Dr. Brooke Wells, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us first a little bit about what drove your interest in this topic. Why are we studying this? I have always been interested in, um, particularly in the sexual double standard, in the ways in which we treat women and men, girls and boys, differently about their uh, sexual behavior. And so that was my original entry into this work to try and understand uh, how gender differences may have changed over time um, Mm. and what that may look like. And uh, that was actually my master's thesis research many, many years ago. Um, Wasn't that many years ago. No, come on. (laughs) Thank you. You're very generous. Um, And I actually worked with Jean Twenge, who is my co-author and the lead author on each of these studies. So we worked together uh, several years ago and then have circled back around to this topic with some more sophisticated data analysis. Yeah, there's some pretty interesting and sophisticated uh, statistics that are being used in these studies. And we're not going to go too deep in that because most people are like, no, don't give me statistics. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we t- don't want to put people to sleep. Right. <laughs> right exactly. We're, you're just going to have to trust that this is some good new methodology yeah. Yeah. that can do some things that in the past we couldn't really do and tease apart some of these effects. But uh, before we, we get into that, just tell us a little bit about the data set that all of these studies are based on, the GSS or the General Social Survey? The General Social Survey is a pretty large survey that interviews people in the United States. It's been going on since 1972 and is still happening. It's conducted by the National Opinion Research Center, um, which is based in Chicago, and they interview anywhere between 1,300 and 4,500 people a year. Every um, year or every, every two years, Well, right? every two years now. Originally, it was every year, and now they're doing it every two years. But the important thing, I think, about this particular sample is that they make a really concerted effort to have the sample be nationally representative, which means that the researchers are aiming to interview a group of people who resemble the demographic makeup of the country. So hopefully what we're getting in these data is as close to a a sort of accurate picture of what's happening in America as we can get. And they keep asking the same questions over and over and over again of these different groups of people. Exactly. So we can track those trends over time. They've actually collaborated internationally. And so there are some questions in the survey that are asked in surveys across the world, Mm. which is fascinating. Um, Mm -hmm. And we use data collected across that full time period, which includes more than 25,000 people for most of our analyses. So you looked at some of the sexual attitudes questions asked and some of the sexual behaviors asked, unlike one of the other studies that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast series that kind of asked really super detailed, like 30, 50 questions about different attitudes and behaviors. There are only a few asked in the GSS. And so you focused on those. So let's talk about the attitudes first, maybe, and then uh, go into behaviors. We often tend to think about cultures moving in in more progressive or more conservative direction together as if in unison, as if all sexual attitudes go in the same direction at the same time. But that's not necessarily what we're seeing, right? We have some attitudes becoming more permissive over time, others not really changing much, and maybe even becoming more conservative. Why are we seeing this? What is going on? So I think that there are different influences on each of the types of attitudes and behaviors that we examine. For example, we found that Americans are much more permissive of premarital sex. That's the language that the survey uses. Probably a lot of that can be attributed to the increased number of divorced people now. Also, marriage has hit a 93-year low. 
Um, <laughs> and the age of first marriage has also gone up quite a bit um, from the 70s until now. And so it's just not as realistic anymore to wait until marriage. That's a lot longer uh, mm. period of waiting than it used to be. And then when you're divorced, you know, any sex that you have outside of the context of marriage uh, post-divorce is inherently premarital until you marry again. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, right. Um, so I think it's just less realistic to uh, wait until marriage now, though there are some people who will argue that that's still the ideal. And I think that in terms of same-sex sexual behavior, I think the gay rights movement has been tremendously effective in normalizing same-sex relationships. They've done a lot of work to demonstrate that same-sex relationships are much the same as opposite-sex relationships or other kinds of relationships. And I think the decrease in permissiveness around extramarital sex is also super interesting. I mean, right, extramarital sex was never highly accepted by everybody. Right. In fact, the vast majority of people, something like 90 or so percent, say that it's not acceptable across mm -hmm. all years. But mm -hmm. now we have the recent generation saying it's even less acceptable. <laughs> yep, absolutely. What's and going I wonder on there? Yeah, I wonder if some of that is also about the rising age of first marriage and the divorce rate. So I wonder if there's a little bit more of an attitude that if something's not going right in your marriage, you can get out of it. Mm. And so why would you cheat when you can just end the marriage and, and sort of do it in a perhaps more ethical manner? Mm. And I also wonder if a later age of first marriage means that there is somewhat of the assumption that maybe you sowed your wild oats before you <laughs> settled down. And I'm, I'm putting air quotes around yeah, the, right. the settling down piece of that. Um, and so I wonder if those same forces are driving those attitudes about extramarital sex. Do you think some of this greater push towards consensual non-monogamy is also playing a role that maybe there is now another somewhat or at least in some places somewhat acceptable way of having sex with other people so cheating is less of an acceptable form of doing that? Yeah, and I don't think we, we know a whole lot about who those extra partners are or what the context is based on what we know um, from the survey questions that were asked. So uh, we can't answer that with these data, but mm. I think that's definitely a possibility. The question there is just purely sex with someone out other than your partner or? Yeah, so and it's actually very specific to extramarital sex. So mm. have you ever had sex with someone other than your husband or wife while you were married? Okay, so it could be consensually non-monogamous too. Absolutely, yep. we don't know that. And then we also don't know what type of sex we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's always an issue, yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. And right. so you, you didn't get too deep into that in this study, right? You just, it's just basic sex, right? Was the, the, right, and yeah. it's really interesting because the general social survey asks very broad questions about sex. So um, they ask about the number of sexual partners, have you had sex in the past year, and sex is really broadly defined by a lot of different folks. And so it may be that some of what we're seeing is uh, earlier in previous generations, maybe anything counted as sex, maybe <laughs> oral sex counted, maybe uh, I'll put heavy petting in yeah. air quotes again and, yeah. and talk about that counting. Whereas today, folks might say, you know, we did everything but, and so that wasn't sex. Right. So the social, general social, social survey asks only these very general sexual mm -hmm. partner and had sex and leaves it up to the participants to define however they want to define that. Right. right. There are other surveys that ask much more specific questions about who put what where and <laughs> right. very specific anatomically. That wasn't uh, your job this time, right? <laughs> no, that was not my job this time. <laughs> 
<laughs> what do you think is going on with teen sex questions? So the question there is, uh, how acceptable do you find sex among teens who are 14 to 16 years old? You found that there was a little bit of change to a greater permissiveness, but not a lot. It seems like it hasn't really changed much from uh-huh. the 70s till today. So, yeah, I think there's uh, still a lot of stigma or, or um, restriction, perhaps is a better word, around uh, particularly young teenagers having sex. And so I'd be really curious to see how that number would change if we would ask people, you know, between 16 and 18 or 17 and 18 and mm-hmm. sort of where that cutoff point of acceptability is. I also think it would be interesting to get a little bit more information about the context in which folks find that appropriate. So... I feel like a bit more um, now there is the acceptability of premarital sex, particularly in the context of a committed relationship, Mm. and the question doesn't give any information about that. So um, I I think that my guess would be that a lot of people would be slightly more accepting of teen sex as long as it was in the context of a, you know, loving uh, long-term relationship. Mm. Exactly. But I think it's interesting and I think it reflects our continued push towards abstinence-only education and towards really trying to keep teens um, either abstinent until they're in a relationship or abstinent until they're married. Um, Or until they're older. (laughs) Right, right. And so despite the increase in acceptance of premarital sex in our schools, we are still um, very focused on abstinence only. Yeah, I think it also reflects this maybe even greater than before discomfort with teenage sexuality in particular. Even Mm -hmm. as we're becoming more comfortable with sexuality among adults, we feel that that's still something that teens can't really make decisions about on their own. They're too young and we have to protect them more and more from this potentially very, very traumatic and very dangerous experience of having sex. Right. And I think uh, increasingly we're talking about 18 to 25-year-olds, sometimes 18 to 29-year-olds as emerging adults. And mm. so we're kind of setting um, the, the emergence into adulthood back even further now. And mm. so this 18 to 25-year-old period is, is kind of thought of by some folks as an extended period of adolescence where you're figuring things out and still fairly dependent perhaps on your parents or um, have a lot of freedom in terms of developing your ideas and your lifestyle and things like that. I think we have definitely moved even more towards feeling like kids are kids for longer and we need yeah. to, and because sex is something that's bad for kids, we have to protect them from it even more. Right, right. And that's a very culturally specific attitude. For example, if you compare us to the Netherlands, for example, Mm -hmm. they have a very different idea of how we should be thinking about adolescent sexuality. Right, Right. exactly. They also think everyone should be riding around in bikes and not be in cars, too, so I don't go by what they say. (laughs) (laughs) I think I should move to the Netherlands. (laughs) Okay. All right, so before you move to the Netherlands, do you have any more questions for Dr. Brooke? (laughs) Fine, I'll do a few more before I book my ticket. This is asking you to speculate a little bit outside of what you are actually studying and looking at in the GSS data, but can you maybe think about some other sexual attitudes attitudes not in the GSS that have gone one way or the other that have either gone become a lot more conservative a lot, a lot more liberal over the last 30 40 years that we discussed right so i have more questions than i have answers around <laughs> that and there are so many aspects that i want to explore um, as i move forward into this research area so one of them i think is really important and super relevant to all of these findings is the changing notions about romantic and sexual relationships 
Um, in, the, in the study where we looked at changes in sexual behavior, we found that folks were more likely to uh, report casual partners, um, acquaintances or friends as sexual partners today than they have been in the past. And I think we don't know enough about the nature of the relationship between those kinds of people. So are those long-term? Are they ongoing? What kind of emotional commitments involved there? How do they think of these people? And so I think that's really interesting. I think also going back to my original sort of interest in this is thinking about how the sexual double standard may have changed over time. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, I am really interested in our changing ideas about sexual consent. So for example, Harvey Weinstein has excused his horrible, egregious behavior Mm -hmm. using his generation as an excuse. So he said to the New York Times, I came of age in the 60s and 70s when all the rules about behavior and workplaces were different. That was the culture then. Mm. And so I think that a lot of people have called him out uh, on that comment and said that that's BS, um, which I would probably agree with. Uh, But I think it's really interesting that he automatically went to a generational excuse. But do you think, I I know we don't have GSS type data about this. Do you feel there has been change since, say, the 60s, 70s on a social scale? I think that it's definitely changing, although my guess would be that we're going to see a lot more change you know, starting in very recent years and moving forward. Mm. I think we're seeing it now, doctor, don't you think? Absolutely. Like people I are think so hypersensitive to all this now. Right, and I think people more and more are coming out and telling their stories in a way that they never did before. Mm. I mean, Harvey Weinstein did this for decades, and people are finally talking about it. Same with Cosby, same with, you know, all of these folks, the same thing, that this has been going on for decades and has been known by a lot of people. And so I wonder what kind of change we're going to see now moving forward. Another sexual attitude that has changed dramatically has been attitudes towards same-sex sexuality. Mm-hmm. And unlike the premarital sex attitudes, which kind of seem to change more gradually over time, for same-sex sexuality, there seemed to be this breaking point where very, very few Americans found same-sex sex not wrong until some somewhere around the 2000s. And then all of a sudden there was this big increase in people who, who thought that that's acceptable and not wrong. Do you think this year might, if we had data going back, that we would see that breaking point regarding sexual consent around around these years? I think so. I mean, I, I definitely think some of these things hit a tipping point, And that has a lot to do with you know, laws that are being made and policy changes and larger civil rights movements and things like that. Um, But I definitely think that we tend to see tipping points. And I feel, you know, in the moment, I will say that I feel like we are in a tipping point around the idea of sexual consent and sexual assault. All right, let's move away from attitudes per se and just and talk about what people are doing, their behaviors. That's all Dr. Jana cares about. That's why we got you on, Brooke. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> attitudes are important, <laughs> especially in terms of how we make sense of the behaviors. But mm-hmm. the behaviors are often the more salacious sure. findings <laughs> of them all. Some of your studies are finding, right, millennials and iGen folks, these more recent generations, are more likely to have had sex with the same sex partner than previous generations, which kind of would make sense given the greater openness Mm -hmm. toward 
same-sex sexuality. So that's kind of one of those few findings that you have that are consistent or that kind of makes sense given our stereotypes and, and preconceptions about the current generations. Do you think that's what's driving this? Is Are people having more same-sex partners or more greater likelihood of having same-sex partners because attitudes toward gay issues have become more permissive? We found that, that the changing attitudes explain some of the increase that we saw in same-sex sexual behavior, but certainly not all of it. Um, it's also possible that Americans perceive that attitudinal changes are larger than they actually are because of media attention to same-sex marriage and, um, you know, sort of gay rights uh, movements and media attention. Um, I think there's also cultural shifts, particularly for women, around performative bisexuality. So the idea that women are um, kissing or engaging in threesomes largely for the benefit of men. Performative, performing Mm -hmm. lesbian acts. Mm -hmm. Right, right. For the male gaze. Uh-huh. Oh, this is getting good now. No, <laughs> yeah, so I think that's probably part of it as well. Um, and I also think, as we note in the paper, that people may feel more comfortable being honest about their behaviors. And uh, I think technology also gives people access to potential partners in a discreet way, in a way that we haven't had before. Uh, and I also think that there are more supports in place. There are um, school support networks like Gay Straight Alliances. Uh, there are increasingly um, rules and sometimes enforcement of those rules around bullying related to sexual orientation or gender identity. And so I think we have a, a bit more support for people in uh, developing that experimentation or perhaps coming out. Okay, so on one hand, we're seeing these shifts toward greater permissiveness, especially among the younger generation with millennials and agent folks having more permissive attitudes toward premarital sex, toward um, same-sex sexuality, them being more likely to have experimented with same-sex partners. But at the same time, they seem to be waiting longer to have sex uh, or having sex with fewer partners than the previous generations, than their parents and maybe even grandparents. So the Gen Xers and the baby boomers were having. What is going on here? It's really interesting. And um, one of the things that we talk about a lot in our papers are uh, rising individuality. So um, I believe that everyone else is free to do whatever they want and make choices that are, you know, whatever they want to make. And I'm also free to make choices that perhaps are not in line with social values or social beliefs because I'm just less reliant on those norms than ever before. So So less um, pressure to both have sex and not have sex. Right, whatever exactly. you want, whatever's um, more, more true to you. More to make up your own mind around mm. that, yeah. And I also think there are some really practical barriers in place. So we know that young adults are living with their parents longer. Um, <laughs> and, and older adults nobody, as well. Mm. Right, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And yeah. nobody likes to have sex in their parents' basement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we also know that folks are getting married later. Um, the rate of marriage is uh, is definitely lower. And I think we tend to think about this, this hookup culture. Um, and one of the interesting things about the hookup literature um, in the research is that uh, those hookups don't always involve penetrative sexual intercourse. They may involve everything but, they may involve only making out. Those are you know, really differently defined um, for different folks. So uh, I think those really practical markers are probably part of it and the individuality is also probably a huge part of that. So the hookups, basically you have maybe more people, because right, that's the expectation is we have this hookup culture where young people in particular are hooking up left and right so they should be having more partners 
But if most people define partners are having had sex as penetration on these surveys and most hookups not involving penetration, then that's kind of why you're seeing fewer partners because most of these casual encounters don't progress to penetration. Possibly, yeah. Um, I mean, we certainly don't know that from these data because we don't have specifics around how they define sex. Right. And so uh, I think that's definitely a possibility. So the data is saying there are more people hooking up. They're just not having sex. Right. They're more they have more casual partners, more acquaintance types of partners, uh, more partners overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. friends. Exactly. Um, There's also sort of an other kind of a partner. And there's, so, so it's not your regular partner. It doesn't fit into any of those other categories. And so that's the particularly interesting thing about the changing nature of relationships. So who are those other people? How do folks define them? How important are they to them? How long have they been having sex? Uh, you know, all of those factors that play into that relationship, I think, are really important to understand. How about technology? How is that playing a role? Because we're thinking, oh, now with Tinder and Grindr and whatnot, more people are hooking up, more people have access to partners, why are we seeing more of these sort of adult virgins hmm. and among millennials and fewer sexual partners? So, um, so you mentioned adult virgins. And what we looked at in the research um, and the way that the general social survey asked the question is the number of partners you've had since the age of 18. Um, and so we counted those who had zero partners since the age of 18 as sexually inactive or abstinent as adults. Um, we don't know that they're fully abstinent necessarily. Right, right. But, um, so they could have had something before 18 right. and then. Right, exactly. It was so um, bad they're like, adult. I can't do this again, right, pretty much? <laughs> possibly, yeah, yeah possibly. Um, but I think that's a really good point around technology. We assume that uh, every millennial has sex in their pocket on their phone <laughs> anytime mm. they want it, quicker than a pizza perhaps. Um, and I think the interesting thing is uh, a lot of folks look at those profiles and spend a lot of time perhaps swiping through faces on Tinder. But I don't know that we know a ton about how often that swiping turns into a date, turns Mm. into sex. And we certainly know that folks who use Tinder, who use those types of things, tend to have more partners than people who don't use those, which makes a lot of sense. But uh, I think it's a really good point to think about how that may play a role in both sexual activity and sexual inactivity as well. Yeah, on one hand, you could think of technology and the hookup culture in general leaving some maybe less traditionally attractive people or those who are shy, more shy or more less assertive, kind of leaving them on the sidelines, feeling like nobody really wants me. I don't really know how to navigate this crazy hookup Tinder kind of world, and they even retreat even more and end up not finding partners because of that. Perhaps. Um, yeah, you could look I at think- the other way, too. You could look at people who are introverted, but they're bolder through an app um, sure, or sure. there's the other yeah. way to look at it, right? Right, absolutely. And I think increasingly the the availability of partners and so many types of dating sites, you know, there's sites for vegans and <laughs> for people who are... Who Farmers. Have herpes, uh, yeah. You know, so there's yeah. just like every possible, you know, there's lots of places to find the lid for your pot. Um, <laughs> and so I think that is potentially increasing sexual activity. But I think on the other hand, you're right that a lot of people hate those things. Um, So often people will say, I hate Tinder, I'm done with it, I always have terrible dates, you know, whatever, and I'm sure that's been happening since 
forever mm. um, or people mm-hmm. have terrible dates. But uh, I do think that there are some people who really don't like that form of dating. And if more and more of their generation have moved to that form of dating, uh, they may be sort of left out of that that nature of dating or that pool of dating. So much of what your studies dealt with and this kind of new statistical methods of analysis that you've been using has been trying to distinguish between three types of effects, age, cohort, and period effects. Can you explain the differences between these in a way that sort of you know, regular non-statisticians can understand and maybe give us some examples of which of these effects that you're finding, which of these changes that you're finding in some of these studies are due to one versus the other and how that plays out? So um, we look at changes uh, according to age and age changes would mean that everyone in a culture changes their attitudes or their behaviors as they get older, perhaps regardless of their generation or the time period. Time period changes would mean that everyone in a culture, perhaps regardless of age or the generation, generation in which you were born um, is changing across time. So attitudes change across time, perhaps regardless of age or generation. And finally, the cohort or generational changes would indicate that the generation in which you were born uh, shapes your attitudes and behaviors. And then perhaps that those attitudes and behaviors are somewhat fixed across time and across age. So something that happens relatively early on in your development as as a child or maybe a a young adult kind of carries with you for the rest of your life. Exactly, exactly. And so we found um, that each of these effects were associated with different um, changes over time. And so, for example, more permissive attitudes towards same-sex sexual behavior and increases in same-sex sexual behavior were largely due to time period. So um, we see these more progressive attitudes and behaviors over time across age groups and across generations. Now, it's, it's also important to note that not all of these shifts that you saw in attitudes and behaviors were similar across all demographic groups. They often differed by things like gender, race, education, uh, region in the U.S., religious service attendance. So, for example, the shift toward greater acceptance of premarital and same-sex sexuality was much more pronounced among men than women among whites, among those in the West. And in fact, you found that like black millennials, southern millennials didn't seem to have gotten any more permissive over time that compared to their grandparents and great-grandparents born in the 1900s. Or like the increase in sexually inactive young adults among the recent generations was almost completely absent among men, black uh, people and southerners and those who attended college. So how did some of some parts of our demographic change so dramatically and others remain unaffected by some of these cultural changes happening around them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I have some initial thoughts around that. We certainly don't know the answer from these data. But I think that many of these demographic differences likely speak to privilege, specifically when I think about the racial differences between black and white Americans. Um, As you noted, we found that many of the shifts towards more progressive attitudes were absent among black Americans. And I think that may speak to uh, varying access to some of the technologies and resources that might be driving changes among white Americans, like access to contraception, abortion, things like that. They may also speak to uh, the increased consequences of sexual behavior among black Americans. Um, We've also focused a lot of uh, sex ed energy and resources towards communities of color, um, often very problematic ways. And so I think that may be playing a role as well. And I think it also may speak to the sexualization of black bodies in a white supremacist culture. So black Americans may be then uh, responding to that and working to keep behavior more conservative um, to try and defy those stereotypes. 
And it may also be about religion. Um, we find that religiosity has declined among white Americans over the years, but not among black Americans. Mm. So I think some of those changes are, are probably uh, playing a role, as well as some cultural differences around um, relationship norms, sexual norms, things like that. And also, I think to some extent, I mean, it's a big country, right, that we live in. America is massive and it has so many subcultures and regions. And so the South, you can I'm not particularly surprised that you haven't seen as much change in the South than you have seen in the North. For example, right? Right, but you don't see this change. But then, if you go into the metropolitan cities in the South, you you feel like you're in New York City. So it's like there's pockets within those pockets, oh, right? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Urban areas versus rural areas yeah. obviously have a difference, but overall, especially since the South is more rural yeah. in general overall mm-hmm. than the North. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the gender differences are particularly interesting. So we see more of the um, shift towards, you know, I keep saying more conservative behaviors, but I think that's oversimplifying that mm-hmm. uh, sort, sort of less frequent behavior or more sexual inactivity. Um, we see some of those shifts more among women than we do among men. Um, and I think that also perhaps speaks to the greater social consequences of defying social norms for women than for men. So women are having less sex? Mm-hmm. Than but, they used to. So who, right. so who are the guys or having the sex with then? <laughs> that has always been the question. There's <laughs> a lot of research about gender differences and number of sexual partners. Men tend to report more sexual partners than do women. And so that's often been the question. I've never heard of that. Are you, sure, are you making this up? <laughs> 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 this is not a thing. <laughs> it's so a thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It is a thing, yes. Yeah. Although, interestingly, there is a study out there that they hooked college students up to what they told them was a lie detector mm. machine, and uh, they actually found um, much lower differences in the number of partners between men and women when they told them they were being hooked up to a lie detector. Yeah, so probably a lot of that has to do with the women <laughs> underreporting, actually. Not even the it men over... It was a little over- both. Yeah. A little bit yeah, of both. It was a but- little bit of both, yeah. So the men were over-reporting a little bit, the women were under reporting a little bit and so they both shifted more to the middle uh, actually i'm pretty sure that at least some of those studies find that it's almost entirely due to women or mostly due to women shifting reporting more partners reporting when they thought partners. they were they were yeah be- yeah and that doesn't surprise me because there is a lot more um there's more social consequences for women sort of moving outside of those social and sexual norms than there is for men. Now, there was one change in all of this that you found in all of the sexual behaviors that was relatively consistent across demographic groups. And that was the decline in sexual frequency since the late 80s until 2014. Although in some demographic groups, the decline was larger than in others. As you write in your uh, paper, the decline in sexual frequency appeared among men and women, blacks, whites, and those of other races, those with more and less education in the East, Midwest, South, and West, among those with minor children in the household and those without, among married and divorced individuals, and among married individuals and those living together. So everybody is having less sex today than they were in the past. Uh, what is going on in America? <laughs> no wonder we're so cranky, doctor. She's Louise. No one's getting laid. Yeah, well, certainly some of that may be about declining happiness and increased rates of depression. 
Um, so we know that depression is on the rise. We also know that uh, treatment, pharmaceutical treatment of depression is much more common, and many of those medications have sexual side effects, mm-hmm. like decreased sexual desire or decreased ability to reach orgasm. So that crankiness could be both a cause and a consequence. Damn, that's a of, vicious cycle, right? More right? depression means yeah. less sex, and more antidepressants means less sex. And and you look at the opioid crisis, it's almost re- reflective of that, right? Because you have sp- so many people get, being medicated that they don't feel the need to have sex, right? Because they're feeling whatever mm-hmm. they're getting out of the medication they're taking. I don't know much about the rates of sexual activity among uh, those using opioids. I mean, we certainly see uh, a good chunk of um, opioid-addicted pregnancies, so there's still sex happening. Yeah. But I also think that uh, we have fewer married. So about, about two-thirds of that decline in sexual frequency can be attributed to the decline in the number of people who are married and partners. Because married people have more sex in general than unmarried people or partnered people with long-term regular partners usually have more sex than those without regular partners, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's a lot about access to partners. So um, particularly Mm -hmm. if you are living with your partner, you may have access to a sexual partner most nights, um, whereas that's a little uh, less consistent for those who are not in steady partnership. Yeah, you have to work really hard (laughs) to to have (laughs) access to a sexual partner every night if you don't have a long-term live-in partner. Doctor, it seems like this is like flying in the face of our attitude. Like, I think everyone's under the impression that Everyone's having sex out there. This sort of contradicts what we all really think or know or think to be out there in in real life. To some degree. I think it's important to note when we talk about that sexual inactivity piece uh, that we find that today there are about 15% of American adults who have been sexually inactive since the age of 18. And that's double what we found in previous years. But I think it's important to remember that it's still a minority of oh, I people. See. Gotcha. Um, so I think that uh, that number is a particularly important one to remember, that there's still a huge chunk of folks who are sexually active. So you um, really should say there's 85% of people out there sexually active, and then you're like, wow, that's a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I guess it's the old which way the, the, uh, the glass is, right? Half full, half empty. Right, right, exactly, yeah. So I think, uh, I think that's an important thing to remember. Mm. And we also found that Americans are having sex about nine times a year less often in the 2010s than in the late 1990s. Hmm. One part of the explanation for why people are having less sex now than than before is we have fewer people who are married or living with their partners. But Mm -hmm. we see this decrease in frequency even among the married and the partnered people. Exactly. So, that, that marital advantage that we just talked about in terms of, you know, perhaps having access to a partner seems to be declining over time. Hmm. So what what is going on there? <laughs> what are, and what are some possibilities? Have Do we have evidence right. to suggest that some of these play a role versus not? Absolutely. So we looked um, at two variables in that particular research. Um, one of the things we looked at is whether or not folks had watched, um, and the question in the general social survey says, have you seen an X-rated movie in the last year? Um, So we looked at porn, and it's just yes or no, have they watched a porn in the last year? Damn, I wish there was a how often you watched porn. (laughs) I so wish there was a how often. Um, And I think it's interesting because we anticipated that folks who were using porn were perhaps uh, having sex less frequently, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, 
masturbating alone, watching porn instead of having sex. Mm -hmm. Um, But we actually found the opposite. Those who had seen a porn in the last year were actually having sex more frequently than those who had not. Hmm. And that's similar to some other research that indicates that uh, folks who watch porn are perhaps having more casual sex partners. Um, But again, I think that really depends on frequency. So if you watched one movie in the last year versus you watch six every day and spend all of your time doing that, it's a really different Right, thing. so there might be some curvilinear relationship to mm-hmm. get all statistical where the people who don't watch porn at all maybe just not very sexual or interested in sex at all to begin mm-hmm. with, and then the people who are watching porn a little bit are the people who are having the most sex in their lives in any way because they're just more sexual people, but then right. as you get to really heavy porn users, they might decrease in frequency well, they're, they're spending all their time. They yeah. can't have sex? Jesus, <laughs> they're watching six a day. I mean, jeez. <laughs> right. right, that's definitely an option. Um, so... The other thing that we looked at is the number of work hours. Um, I think that was a, a solution that, as as a workaholic myself, that was a solution that was very attractive. <laughs> um, that we're having less sex because we're working more? Exactly, right? Mm-hmm. And so the General Social Survey asks people how many hours they worked in the last week. And we actually found that uh, folks who worked more hours were actually having sex more frequently. So the huh. opposite of what we thought there as Jeez. well. So what's that about? I don't know. <laughs> my, my thinking is that, um, that work looks really different than it used to. So if somebody were to ask me how many hours I worked, I might think of the number of hours that I was actually in the office or perhaps sitting down at a computer or you know clocking in or what have you. Um, but when I get home at night, I'm still on my phone, I'm answering emails, I'm texting with my colleagues. And mm. so even though that's technically leisure time, yeah. um, it's I'm not really ever turned off. And that's certainly speaking for me personally, but mm-hmm. I think that's true for a lot of people. No, he's speaking for a lot of people because people may have certain hours that they're working, but you never disconnect from your job unless you're one of these people like, 9 o'clock I check in, 5 o'clock I'm out, and that's it. But there's so few people like that now. Mm-hmm, exactly. So I think the, the number of hours maybe didn't change, but the connection and sort of the right. constant um, awareness of work tasks and, you know, what's happening tomorrow. I have to text my colleague and let them know something. And so you're, you're constantly connected. And that's for most people just not very sexy. So what is it then? Okay, maybe this is playing a role that even though the actual number of hours didn't seem to affect, but maybe you were still kind of connected to work. But it's not porn. It's not the number of hours. Why are we having less sex, even when we have partners? Right, that's what, what What's question. left? What are some of the possibilities that we could still explore maybe in future research as potential explanations for this effect? So one of the things that I think has become a, a really attractive um, possibility for, for folks uh, is the idea of connection to our devices or to social media. Mm. Um, for example, uh, Jean Twenge, who is the lead author on these studies, just published a book called iGen and talks about the ways in which um, the folks who are born sort of in the mid-90s and later are um, are really connected to their devices. They're the first generation to really um, be kind of digital natives, to, to grow up and be an adolescence when we have smartphones and iPads and, you know, all of that thing, all of that technology. Mm-hmm. And so there's some sense that perhaps social media use or, you know, smartphone use more generally is disconnecting us from real life experiences. Are we spending, I don't know if we have data on this, but are we spending more time on social media now than we were spending on other forms of media like watching TV and other 
forms of media and entertainment in the past? That's a great question. I'm sure that there are data on that. So I think what you're asking is, you know, maybe we're spending more time on yeah. social media, but we're watching fewer movies or watching right. less. I think there's that on that, yeah. but it's not much. Like they've said, like the TV viewing is not as down as you'd expect. Has just not because gone down. We've yeah, just be- added more social media use on top of that. Well, and think about it. Think about how many ways you can get television. It's not sure. just it's sure. not just primetime television three hours a night. You can watch a Netflix movie any time of day. Right. So I wonder, do you think, I mean, I'm maybe getting too deep here, but do you think people are getting some sort of satisfaction in their brain from all this connectivity that used to be for sex, but now it's being replaced with all this connection with the technology. And now they're like, all right, I felt that in my good part of my brain where I usually feed that, so I don't need the sex? I know that's sort of like a really deep question, not really scientific, but do you think that's, that maybe that's where it's being satisfied? I think that's absolutely a possibility. Um, I think it's you're right. It's important to remember that sex is not just about the physical pleasure, yeah. but it's very much about connection. With I keep telling person. that to Dr. Jana all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right, and so maybe some that. of those connections that you're able to forge in various other ways um, with people who maybe aren't even in the same country as you uh, helps you feel connected and um, you maybe don't uh, need or seek out those other kinds of connections perhaps as much as we used to. And probably also what we talked about earlier about Tinder and and hookup apps and all that, those give you, scrolling through them, gives you a sense of sexual connection with other Mm -hmm. people without necessarily having to go and do it. So you might kind of get that self-esteem boost that someone else swiping you right um, gave you and you might even sex a little bit and you might Mm -hmm. get a little bit of that kind of sexual arousal, maybe even enough material to jerk off. You don't feel the need to actually go through the trouble of meeting up and doing the date and spending money, spending time, Mm -hmm. awkwardness Mm -hmm. of meeting and then actually having sex. Right. We just did an interview with uh, young adults about their sex and relationships and sexuality. And one young woman was talking about meeting a guy on Tinder. But then she found out how uh, she would have to get to him. And she said, I'm not taking a bus to have (laughs) sex with anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Too complicated, man. Dr. Dr. John has that problem with New Jersey. To her, New Jersey is like another country to get out there. Oh, really? I've got to go across a bridge and a tunnel? I can't do that. But you're right. That's funny. Like, even though there is more access, at the end of the day, you still want sex to be convenient. You don't want to have to drive an hour to get sex. You may be able to swipe and connect with someone like that, but it still means you get in a car or get on a bike. It's, it's, It's still that has to do with it, right? Right. Absolutely. And maybe you're, you know, tindering and swiping at like 11 p.m. because you're laying in bed and you're trying to fall asleep. And then you're like, I'm not actually going to go meet anybody right now. (laughs) Tomorrow I got busy and just kind of forgot about that person I was chatting with. I wonder if we could connect brainwaves and see if like all that connectivity we're doing gives off the same pleasure as sex. Do you think it's possible like we could like connect something into, I mean, I guess not now, we don't have technology, but we could like plug something into people's brains and see that it's maybe feeding the same part of the brain where the sex part was getting fed. You know, maybe there's something to that. Because like you said, you're tindering at night, but maybe you're not actually meeting with people, but just the idea of tindering and swiping and possibly messaging with people fulfills that sexual urge. To a certain degree. Potentially, yeah. Um, I think it could fulfill sort of both a sexual urge and an emotional urge for connection. I think we also have a little bit of a, a, a paradox of choice in this as well, that there are mm. so many people yeah. on Tinder and Bumble and Grinder and all the choices that we can have um, that maybe sort of settling on somebody and actually choosing a single person is really difficult for us. Yep. When you have fewer choices, you're like, this is it. I got to <laughs> I gotta do something. But when it's right, endless, right. 
Yeah, and if we think of earlier generations, it's like, well, th- this person lives in my town and they want to get married. Great. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the only way I'm going to get to have sex, and I really want to do that. So let's go. <laughs> awesome. This is so fascinating. I'm looking forward to more of this research. Dr. Brooke Wells, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This Week in Sex Science. Some awesome news. Having sex at old age can make you more intelligent. A new study by Coventry and Oxford Universities have found that people aged between 50 and 83 who engaged in more regular sexual activity scored higher on tests that measured their verbal fluency and their ability to visually perceive objects and the spaces between them. I'm loving the way this is sounded. I mean, I'm not there yet, but frequency of sexual activity was not linked to attention, memory, or language. This study expanded on previous research from 2016, which found that older adults who were sexually active scored higher on cognitive tests than those who were not sexually active. Dr. Jana, tell me this is all really good. What's going on here? Is sex making people smarter? Well, I'm not sure we can claim that based on what you just told me. Oh. Yeah, sorry to disappoint. Oh. But that, so, pause, that pause there, I kind of had a feeling you were going to kind of burst my bubble there. But go ahead, what? Well, if we trust the findings of these two studies, and, and I have no reason not to, it does seem that older adults who remain sexually active have better cognitive functioning than older adults who are not sexually active or have sex less often. Right, okay. But that does not mean that the sex caused them to be smarter in these ways. So what we're seeing here is a case of correlational study being presented as causational study. And as anyone who's ever taken a stats class or a psych class will tell you, correlation is not causation. Can you just say that in layman's terms? Because I have no idea what that, any of that means. So what's, <laughs> Correlation what? is not causation. So just because these two things are related, mm-hmm. that you found this group of people who are more sexually active scoring higher on verbal fluency and visual-spatial ability yeah. tests, doesn't mean that they scored higher on these tests because they were more sexually gotcha. active. Because what happens here is you have the, you, you're just measuring these things, how much people are having sex with how well their brains are working, cognitively speaking, and just correlating the two things. So, okay, they're correlated, but what's causing what? Perhaps it's the other way around. Perhaps it's it's because these older adults are already in a better cognitive functioning level. Gotcha. That's why they're having more sex. Maybe that's why they have more access to partners, or that's why they are still more interested in sex, whereas those who've lost some of their cognitive ability are less interested in that. So we don't know based on this data mm-hmm. whether it's the sex causing better cognitive ability or it's better cognitive ability causing more sex or it's some third factor causing both it could be something completely different leading to both more sex and better cognitive ability so i see what you're saying so if this study took maybe older fellas check their cognitive ability then had them have sex non-stop for like you know a year and then tested their cognitive ability again then if that showed that their ability was improved by the sex, that would make sense to you. Now you're starting to think like a scientist All right, look a at little this. bit. You're, you're going in that direction. Me. You are missing one thing. Okay. So you have one group that you assign, and it has to be randomly assigned. So you okay. have to get a group of people, group of older adults. Okay. So we get hundred older adults. Oh, I can't get hundred old adults. Can I make it smaller? No, okay, no, no. We need we need we need right. a lot of people and hundred. Okay. okay, so let's. Say you have 100 old, older adults, okay. and then you randomly, by flipping a coin, assign half of those people to have sex, say, on a weekly basis for, for a year, okay. and the other half, you tell them you can't have sex wow. for a year. No sex. They period. got the short straw on that one. Yep. Okay. Yep. If 
the people who were randomly assigned to have a lot of sex over the course of a year, if a year later they showed better cognitive abilities than these other ones, and presumably they were all on average the same at the beginning, and you right. can measure that and make sure that the two groups are identical. Totally on cognitive ability when they began the experiment, then you can claim that it was the sex leading to better cognitive ability. If you find it unethical to forbid (laughs) 50 adults from having sex and (laughs) force these other 50 people to be having lots of sex that they may not be into, (laughs) what you could do is just follow the same people over time, what's called a longitudinal design. Let's say you have these 100 adults and some of those are having a lot of sex, some are not having sex, some are at higher levels of cognitive ability, some are at lower, and you measure all of that at the beginning when you start, and then a year later... You, again, measure their cognitive ability, how much sex they had, and then you statistically control Mm -hmm. for these differences between the groups at the beginning. Right. You can kind of make a claim that even though it's not very strongly Mm -hmm. causal claim, you can maybe say that one thing came before the other. So you can say, well, the sex came before the increase in cognitive ability. Therefore, there's a chance that it's a causal link. Did that make sense? Yeah, no. Actually, it's it's almost like you've turned it into a chicken and the egg kind of thing. What came first? It is a chicken and the egg. Because when you just measure things at one point in time, like this study did, you don't know what came first. Yeah. You just know that you have a chicken and you have an egg. Yes. And <laughs> you don't know which one came there's first. There's no way to determine which came first. But this brings up something that very often happens in journalists writing about research studies yeah. where they will interpret these correlational type studies as causation. And then you see these headlines saying, this causes this. <laughs> yes. And in reality, all you yeah. found is that this is correlated yeah. with this. And I'm sure people probably saw this on their Facebook or Twitter feed feed about you know it's just seeing the headline and then probably not even clicking on the link but essentially just saying of older course. people having sex uh, improves their cognitive ability right, right, right. so all right well our time's running out can we do a longitudinal test where maybe you're not allowed to have sex for a week and see what happens <laughs> the next time we gather for the science of sex podcast it's not a very long longitudinal study but maybe I, i'll consider it no you would you're lying to me right I now i can do a week i can do i can really? totally do a week yes. okay yeah no for sure I can all right do you a might week. be a little crabby you do a week? Oh boy, look at that. Time is up. If you uh. like what you hear, make sure to rate and review the Science of Sex podcast on iTunes. Dr. Jana, see you next week. See you, Joe. Bye. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavila.com. Like us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been the Science of Sex. 